Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf with the Too Few Good Choices episode. Today we'll be going back to 1920s Washington, D.C., where bootleggers, ghosts, powerful spirits, and some humans blessed and burdened with charms engage in an epic battle over people's destinies. My guest today is Leslie Penelope, and her latest novel is The Monsters We Defy. She is an award-winning author of fantasy and paranormal romance. Her debut novel, Song of Blood and Stone, was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 Best Fantasy Books of All Time. The novel also won the inaugural award for Best Self-Published Fiction from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. Leslie is on Skype with me now from her home in Maryland. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I loved The Monsters We Defy. Thank you. You are so welcome. It places a story of good and evil and magic into a real setting, Mm -hmm. the black community of 1920s Washington, D.C., and I found it really fun and fascinating to see that world brought to life. And it also seems like a very unique time in American history, or maybe not unique, but I found it fascinating to be with people who were still close to the period of slavery, you know, whether they experienced it themselves Mm -hmm. or their parents did or their grandparents did. And so Mm -hmm. I thought maybe we could start by talking about your main character, Clara Johnson, whose grandmother had in fact been born enslaved. And from Clara's grandmother, she seems to have acquired a special ability. Sure. So Clara was born with a call, which means she's born with the amniotic sac surrounding her. And in many cultures around the world, they believe that children born like this have special powers. And so that's very prevalent in black culture, too. So because she was born with a call, she can speak to spirits. She can see ghosts and spirits and she can communicate with them. And as a child, she can actually peer through to the other side. And so in this world, there is a world kind of layered on top of ours, which has spirits of all kinds, mundane to the extremely powerful and also the ghosts who don't cross over and her grandmother at some point passes on but stays around her and and is able to communicate with her and guide her even you know in the afterlife yeah and so clara has dealt with this ability her whole life and this is separate from the other magic system that's in the book it's sort of just an extra layer of something that she was actually born into and has caused her trouble and so she would rather shy away from it you know it's, it's often a burden as opposed to being seen as a gift that's right. That's right. So there's there's something else also going on that Clara has this additional ability that is called a charm. And if you get a charm, you get a trick. I, I thought it would be interesting maybe if we just went through something that happens early in the book. A stranger comes to her, as people often do, asking for help with a problem. So in this case, there was a stranger named Louise Wyatt who pays her a visit, and Clara is obliged even though she's exhausted after a long day at work, to to listen to her and to help her. So I thought this would be a great way for, I think, listeners to get a sense of who Clara is and the kind of world she's operating in. Sure. So yeah, in the world, there are these spirits called enigmas. And human beings can barter with them, essentially, to gain something. And so at some point in Clara's life, she's done this. And you get a charm, which is 
ostensibly a good thing, a power or an ability, but it also comes with a trick, which is a not so good, like a sacrifice or the other side of the coin. And so Clara's trick is that she has to help broker these deals. It uses her natural ability to speak with the spirits. And so when someone comes to her with a problem and needing something, she can't turn them away. So this young woman named Louise comes by. Uh, she's heard about Clara through the neighborhood, through years of her helping to broker these deals and helping people. And she has an issue with her boyfriend who has stopped coming around. And uh, it's a funny scene because Mama Octavia, who is Clara's grandmother in spirit form, is kind of hovering around watching, giving her commentary. And it's the 1920s. So uh, there's a lot of what we would call slut shaming today. But Clara is a little bit more even about the whole thing. She realizes that it takes two to tango. And so Louise wants her boyfriend to come back. And so basically she's like, I know that you can do the deal. I'll do anything if he comes back. And because this is Clara's trick, this is the downside. She has to communicate with the spirit and quote unquote, help Louise with this problem, knowing that while she's going to give the girl a trick, I mean, a charm, which is what she wants, it's going to end up in a trick. And, you know, they don't know what the trick is ahead of time. The spirit will tell them, but a lot of times when people want something, they just are focused on the thing they want and they're not paying attention to the downside and the cost that they're going to have to pay. And they won't really realize the true impact on their life until later. And these tricks are are no joke, you know, so it is a serious downside that that's going to happen that Clara sees coming from a mile away, but poor Louise has no idea. So charms come with tricks, and that sort of reminded me of when people make a deal with the devil. There's a price they have to pay, but it's usually the same price. They're selling their soul, basically, for all eternity mm -hmm. or something. And what's fascinating about the charms and tricks that you've created is that they're customized. Yeah. They're unique to the person. So the charm is unique to the problem, and then there's a flip side of it that you don't see because you so want. And the charm sounds great. I mean, it does sound great. It's like, yeah, I want him to come back. I want him to fall in love and always be in love with me. You know, and it's like, what could be wrong with that? Right. But it becomes unbearable over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it's pulled from black American folk magic, things like hoodoo and conjure and roots. It's got different names in different regions. But there's this idea of the, the two sides of the coin, that there's always a cost. And that happens in a lot of different cultures, and a lot of magic systems. I mean, traditionally, you hear about magic has to have a cost. Otherwise, it's not as interesting. And, you know, it, it be, people become too powerful. You have the Superman problem. And so, yeah, I was pulling from kind of real sources of folklore and actual religions that people practice and then mixing it up and trying to come up with something that was individualized for the characters so that I could pull together this heist story. Because as I was conceiving of it, I was like, well, I have a heist. I want a magical fantasy heist. So the, these people, the crew members are going to have powers. And what are those individual powers? And then what are those individual costs that make them want to give up, eventually give up the powers that they have because the cost is so great? I thought it was interesting that the trick in some instances leads to some version of loneliness, some form of isolation, when what people are seeking is is love or popularity or, you know, and they end up with just the opposite of what it is they're looking for. Yeah, that irony. <laughs> it's very specific to black culture, the story. I mean, the story is set in a, in a black world and as you're drawing on black folklore. And Mama Octavia says in this scene, first she says, well, everyone has a choice. She didn't have to take it, so don't feel bad. Mm -hmm. And then Clara says, yeah, well, but not everyone has a good choice. And then Mama Octavia responds, well, yeah, it's true. Colored folks don't often get good choices, do we? Yeah, that was one of the things that I was looking at, too. You know, trying to create like the, 
a realistic portrayal on one hand of black life in 1925 in this all black neighborhood, which was actually thriving. And a lot of people were doing really well, but it's amidst the environment of that period of time in America where things were so difficult. And I didn't want the focus to be like on racism and, you know, racial strife. That's just part of everyday life for these people. That's not the main conflict of the story or even what I'm focusing on in their daily lives. But, you know, it's there. And so we're there just trying to navigate the world as best they can and eke out their existence, trying to thrive as well as they can in this place. But there's barriers all around and sort of like this microscope that I have on this community that's just only, I don't know, 20 square blocks or so in DC that really existed and and have it be its own place with its own life. And that's the, the same community they're ultimately trying to save as the whole point of the novel. So that focus was important to me just to show that, to show something that I don't they haven't seen in that way before necessarily in, in books, especially fantasy books. A theme that seems to run through the book are class divisions. Mm -hmm. The community is very aware of the class divisions. I mean, there's the well-to-do black folk and there's the poor black folk and there's the darker skinned black folk and the lighter skinned black folk and there's this hierarchy. Yeah. There's even a black character who refers to the genetic inferiority of the lower classes. I mean, there's an irony there too. Uh, I don't even know if the irony is the right word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's that's really pulled. I mean, there's just so many, there's conflicts in all communities and the black community has historically in America had colorism issues dating back from slavery and things that were perpetuated amongst ourselves. And part of that, I think, is just human nature. You know, like, even if you are oppressed, um, wasn't that like the, the prison project or you know, anybody can become an oppressor if they're given power. And black people aren't immune from that. And so that's kind of why I was telling this black story and trying to show different aspects of the culture, the good and the bad and the ugly because it's real. And D.C. especially was very class conscious. You know, uh, D.C. after the Civil War had the highest population of African-Americans in the country before Harlem did. It was D.C. And they had they were able to have good government jobs until the night until Woodrow Wilson was elected pres president because the government was actually integrated. And so he resegregated them. And so for a long time you had uh, during Reconstruction, there were black you know, Congress people and you know, that short period of time. So there was this like, boom, and some people were able to rise really high. And then everyone else was just coming out of slavery and sharecropping. And there was just these vast, vast differences. But those class systems were really entrenched in Washington, D.C. Up until very recently, I think, and maybe to this day, but I know even my mother who was born and raised in D.C. would talk about these sort of class and color differences among her peers and people that she knew. So it was just a part of, a part of life that I, I wanted to spotlight and include and show different sides of. Why don't we talk about the heist part of the story? Clara's enigma who goes by the name the Empress, offers her a job and promises to remove her charm and trick if she can complete it. And it's about stealing this ancient ring from this very wealthy, in fact, maybe the richest or at least the most well-protected and powerful woman in the community. But that ring isn't just like a diamond that's worth a lot of money. It has, it has enchantments on it that Clara and her friends figure out, or at least Clara figures out, is connected to the disappearance of people in the community who tend to be from the poor community and, and people 
almost don't notice they're missing or very casually they notice it. Oh, yeah, that person went. Oh, yeah, that person didn't show up for work. Oh, yeah. But there isn't like this concerted search for them and the police aren't running around mm-hmm. and investigating. It's really up to Clara to step forward. And I just thought that was so resonant that it is a high story, but it has real world consequences that touch on these class themes that you were talking about in a way, you know. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't it, I'm not framing it as a question. I'm making sort of an observation, but but it feels cut from real life. Sometimes certain people disappear and there's less concern and other people disappear mm-hmm. and it's a front page story. So what inspired you to make that connection between the heist and the community at large? Yeah, I mean, I definitely we we see in the black community. I can't remember the the statistic, but there's there was something like hundreds of black women went missing, you know, in any given year that we don't ever hear about. But you know, you have a young blonde, you know, uh, college student goes missing, and the entire country is captivated for months. And so we see those disparities, and those are evident in other communities. I know Native American communities have similar statistics like that, where it's just hard to get people to care. And so you know, if I constructed, sort of, maybe not idealized, but a Black community that is one I wouldn't mind living in if it existed, you know, even in this time period, where all they have is each other. Like, they know that no one else is going to care, especially in the lower classes. And Clara, I think she's kind of digging her way into the middle class, but she has a lot of empathy for those around her. And so... Yeah, she becomes very concerned when, you know, there's this teenage boy that she knows and she's friends with goes missing and then she notices all the other people. And as I was thinking about, okay, making a heist, what are they going to steal? Because I knew at the very beginning of this project, all I knew was that I wanted a fantasy heist in the Harlem Renaissance era. And I had no idea how I was going to inject magic into it or what they were going to steal. And then just through research and brainstorming, things started to come together. And it just seemed natural to tell a story about community and about that being the most important thing, especially for this time period, and, and just about the people. And I started thinking about destiny and uh, you know, after slavery, like what is the destiny and how does being enslaved change the trajectory of what your life could have been? You know, no one was, I don't believe anyone was created to be enslaved. So we have a whole generations, hundreds of years of, you know, Africans who were brought here and changed everything about what their lives could have been. Just thinking about that and the legacy and trying to connect things together. And just, that's just sort of where my mind went. So dealing with theme, themes of community and belonging. And those are themes that actually are in my other work as well in different, very different forms. But I'm always thinking about a main character and how they fit into their society or their community and how they may feel like outcasts. Maybe they don't feel like they fit and how can they, how does that change? Or how is that just an illusion in their minds, part of the character arc? And so injecting that into a heist where, yes, they're stealing something and you have sort of the trappings of the heist and I get to have some fun with people's abilities and, and you know, planning scenes and the fun things that we like about the genre and still be able to talk about something that is really meaningful to me and that I'm really interested in. We get a window into these people are disappearing and as we find out a little bit more about what happened to them, there's this sense that their labor is being used and their labor is being stolen from them. So it actually has echoes of enslavement as well, it seems. Yeah, exactly. Because there were there were black people who owned slaves. We know Africans sold, you know, other Africans into slavery. It's all, you know, just once again, going back to human nature. So yeah, the underlying theme is that the person responsible is using this labor and is has a motive of greed, among other things. But like it comes back to greed a lot of times. 
why don't we talk a little bit more about Clara? Because she's such a marvel. She's so determined and so fearless. And I mean, almost to her own detriment, sometimes she's ready to like, you know, get in a fist fight with someone if they cross her. She doesn't take flack from anyone. She doesn't even take flack from her enigma. You know, she's willing to say no at first to her. And I don't know if there's anything you could say about what drives a character like that. She is just a spitfire. It was a fun character for me to write because it's different than most of my other heroines. And I got to delve into someone who was definitely a challenger. You know, she's always fighting back. She's a very tough nut to crack. A lot of it is there's found family in this. And for her to be dragged kicking and screaming into a found family by people who, you know, consider her friends or would like to consider her a friend. She has a soft heart, but it's covered by a hard shell. And her experiences throughout life have hardened her, you know, but it's still there is that empathy, especially for other people and community. And you see it throughout the book where even though she's, you know, she's saying, I don't want to, you're not my friend. I don't, I'm going to deal with you, but I'm going to always take care of you and always be there for you at the same time. And so there was just that juxtaposition of those qualities that I think you see in, in, characters that I like too, you know, where they're gruff on the outside, but inside they have the heart of gold, right? And and she's been burdened by the power that she has, not only the power she was born with, but the charm and the trick throughout life. And so there's, there's these factors. She's kind of alone in, in the world at this point, except for her, the ghost of her grandmother who has stayed by her for that reason. So yeah, she has a lot of reasons to kind of lash out at people, but she was incredibly fun to write because I just got to imagine, okay, what would what would it be like? Because that's nothing like me. And it took a lot of work to be like in, in drafts. Because like, her for, when I would write her initially, she would be a lot softer. And then I'm like, oh, no, no, but Clara wouldn't do that. Let me go back and like take it up a few notches. And, you know, how is Clara going to bite back? And how is she always going to come out swinging no matter what? And that was great. <laughs> that's great. I mean, there's so many great characters in, in the book. The character Aristotle is another fascinating one. I mean, for my part, he has the best charm. He can make himself appear as anyone. That's what I would want. So if you ever have the power to actually to grant without, I don't want to trick though, but I'll take the charm of being able to <laughs> right, yeah. manifest as anyone. His charm is great. He's a chameleon and he's an actor. So, you know, a vaudevillian performer and he wants to be able to transform into his characters. But, you know, his trick is, is pretty bad. It's pretty devastating. And it's another one of those that isolates that, you know, no one can ever see him for who he truly is. So he can't make real connections as himself. And I don't even remember, you know, when those came, when that particular trick came about, I think sometimes it was, what's the natural opposite of the charm they're given? And also, you know, what is the thing that would just be so hurtful and difficult to deal with that you would risk everything to to have a shot at getting getting rid of it, even if it means getting rid of this cool power that you have that you're able to use. And they, they use Aristotle a lot and he becomes, he gets to become different people and get them out of hairy situations, So, which was also fun to write. Do you want to talk a little bit about the research you did? Clara is a historical figure, which is an interesting thing, although to talk about her is also to talk about her history, which takes a while in the story to reveal. So maybe it's like a spoiler alert if we do talk about it, because you sort of find out towards the middle or end. The, the part on which you base her character mm -hmm. is kind of this formative moment for her that led to her getting the the trick and the charm and so everything we when we meet her she's well she's well fictionalized because she has all these powers right i think it would be interesting to just to talk about the kernel you you took from the historical figure to create this character sure yeah it is a reveal but i do i do talk about it and so i don't think i don't consider it a spoiler i mean i think for maybe diehards it doesn't really spoil it just spoils her kind of backstory her motivation but you know when i 
when I started, like I said, I only had this idea of having a heist. And so I started doing research about the time period. I didn't even know what year it was going to be. Originally, I was thinking it was going to be in Harlem. And uh, then I changed it very quickly to Washington, D.C. because of, and I've lived there. My family is from there. And there was just so much wonderful history available. And so then diving into the history of D.C. specifically and really trying to make it come alive. So I was researching and writing this book in 2020. So I didn't have the ability to even go to libraries, you know, for most of the the creation of this book. So it was online research, JSTOR, which is like an online repository of academic papers and journals and all kinds of more academic type things. But there was a lot there. I found the real Clara Johnson in a newspaper article in the Washington Post about the 1919 riots. And so briefly, the real person... She was 17 years old in the riots of 1919, which I didn't even know D.C. had riots that, that summer. That was Red Summer. And like so much, so many other places, there was a race riot and it lasted for four or five days. And originally, and initially, the authorities did very little to quell it. But during that time, someone was shooting from the roof. There was an accusation that someone was shooting from the roof of her home. And so police officers burst into her house, burst into her bedroom where she was hiding with her father with a gun. And she shot back. And she ended up killing a white police officer. And so the fact that she wasn't lynched immediately was also pretty miraculous. And for a 17-year-old girl to do that, and of course, it reminded me of Breonna Taylor. And there's these stories of especially black women being shot in their homes by police officers. So she's uh, charged with manslaughter. She actually is convicted originally and serves over a year in jail. And then the the original judge uh, passes away. And so she she applies for a new trial, and the original judge would not allow her to plead self-defense. So when she gets a new trial, the new judge will allow her to do that, and the district attorney decides that there's no way they can get another conviction under those circumstances. So they essentially drop the charges, and so she gets to go free at 19. And I looked at that. That's basically all we know about the real person. And uh, I looked at that and I was like, what happens to her, you know, after that experience? And that's one of the reasons why she has such a hard shell. I build in this additional backstory to explain it further, but that was the seed for me for creating a character that is a little bit gruff and a little bit choleric, like, like Clara is, and is quick to fight and defend herself, because I imagine that's what you have to do when you're in jail, even when you're a teenager. So when I was reading that story, I was like, how did this young black girl get out of that situation? And I was like, it had to be magic. Like, if magic was involved, that would make so much more sense than, you know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. So layering the magic on top of that and, okay, there's a deal. Is it a deal with the devil that that, ha- that happened that made her go free? Or is it a deal with some less nefarious spirit, but that still has consequences? And Diving into the research of everything happening in that time period, I ended up setting it in 1925 because I discovered that there had been a Klan march in August of that year down Pennsylvania Avenue right in front of the White House. And I knew it was only going to be like a tiny little mention. It's a blip in the story early on, but it sets the stage for the backdrop of the environment that my characters are in. And so once again, it wasn't about them fighting the Klan or them fighting white people. I don't, I'm not sure that there's any white people that have any speaking lines that, you know, maybe, maybe one across the street or something, but that's the world that they lived in. And so they're navigating and maneuvering through this complex world with all of these pressures. But again, they're in their small community and they're, they're focused on that entirely, basically for the whole thing. 
there is the clan out there. There are the enigmas. There's someone stealing people. And this sense that you've already said of, of the community needs to come together in order to succeed. And yet there are divisions within the community, too, sort of underscoring the how self-defeating it is to be making these class divisions and colorism divisions when mm-hmm. yeah. you have so much more to gain by by coming together. You also weave in historical figures. I mean, there's a reference to right. someone named Langston who writes poetry. <laughs> and there's Gene Toomer, who was an author. I think he was of the Harlem Renaissance. He was from D.C., yeah. And there's also W.E.B. Du Bois. He makes a, a sort of appearance. A sort of appearance, <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, is it really him? Everyone thinks it's him. Right. Like Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who's the founder of Black History Month, is actually Clara's boss. And because Langston Hughes, the real Langston Hughes worked there too, I got to work him in. They go to see a professor at Howard University who was real William Hansberry. He was actually, I think, the uncle or cousin of Lorraine Hansberry who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. And yeah, just I was looking at, okay, who was in D.C.? So many people were in D.C., so many people that you know you may have heard of or there are historical figures or important in some way. And if I could fit them in, the only person I couldn't fit in was Duke Ellington, who was also from Washington, D.C., but uh, he was living in New York, uh, you know, doing his Harlem thing. And it, it was too much to try to squeeze him in on top of everybody else. But I, I packed several real historical black, uh, black history figures in there. Very cool. That's very cool. So what's next on the agenda? What are you working on now? What, do you have something coming out in the future? I do. I, well, the book I'm writing now is so. This is a standalone. I do get asked a lot if there's if there's going to be a sequel to the Monsters We Defy. At the moment, in February of 2023, there uh, is not. But I, I get emails all the time, so we'll see what the muse does. The current work in progress is another historical fantasy. This one takes place in an all-black town in the South that's being threatened by the construction of a dam, and so it's based on the stories of drowned towns that are all around the country. And so, you know, they want to, it's another story about community, but it's just a different, different type, different lens. And how can they save this thriving all black town through a magical means? And that, that should be coming out now in 2024. And then I have, I have a trilogy that's sort of a different lens, like paranormal romance, futuristic, post-apocalyptic. So I have a book called Beastly Kingdom that's coming out at the end of April. Fantastic. The pandemic didn't slow you down, I guess. I wrote all through it. I didn't take a break. So, yeah, I just kept going, <laughs> for better or for worse. Thank you so much, Leslie. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I'm so glad to have this time with you, and I'm glad you could come on the podcast with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great talking to you. <laughs> I've been talking to Leslie Penelope, whose novel The Monsters We Defy has been out since August from Red Hook. I'm Rob Wolf your host for this episode of New Books and Science Fiction. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show, leave a review, tell your friends. I'll be back next time with my co-host, Brenda Nuezer. I hope you are all having a lovely spring and enjoying many good books.